You're listening to TIP. One project that was kind of interesting, I bought a, a four-unit apartment that had been had caught on fire. The, the fire department came in, like, you know, hosed the whole thing down. When you walked in, two of the units were lived in by hoarders. And I saw these and I was like, oh, I'm buying this thing. So I bought it for $10,000. We went through seven massive dumpsters, like just to gut this thing and took it down to the studs. I love that your instinct is, I'm buying this thing. Hey everybody, in this week's episode, we're going to change things up a bit and try something new for me. I sat down with Nick Hill and Dan Foch, who are the co-hosts of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. I haven't talked too much in past episodes about my own real estate investing journey, and Nick and Dan interviewed me to discuss how I got my start in real estate, how my strategies have evolved over the years, what the pros and cons of running a fix and flip business are, how I'm transitioning from residential to commercial real estate, and what some of my biggest takeaways have been from co-hosting the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm the founder and managing director of the Wexford Group, which is a real estate redevelopment company based in Columbus, Ohio. This was the first time I've been interviewed about my thoughts on real estate, and I had a complete blast with Nick and Dan. They did a fantastic job, and I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. And so without further delay, Let's jump into this week's episode with me, Patrick Donnelly, being interviewed by Nick Hill and Dan Foch. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly, and I have with me two Canadian investors from the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, Nick Hill and Dan Fausch. I'm really excited to have them. We're going to turn the tables actually here today, and they're going to do an interview of me, which I'm excited for. First time I've done this. So I'm going to turn it over to you, gentlemen, and uh, let's get this uh, interview started. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. I think I can speak for both of us. We're, we're excited to be here doing some cross-border conversations about uh, all of our favorite things, which is real estate. Definitely. Yeah, looking forward to it. I guess quick introductions of myself. My name is Nick Hill, I'm a mortgage agent, real estate investor, and lucky enough to be the co-host of Canada's largest real estate and investing podcast, co-hosted with none other than Dan Foch. Yeah, my name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker by trade investor as well. And I guess I've sort of fallen into a bit of an analyst role in the Canadian real estate market, especially mostly because realtors are the ones with access to most of the data in the Canadian market. And so just try, really trying to tell the story of what's happening to the real estate investment space, as well as sort of the, the housing economy. And this has been a popular topic in the US as well, as the housing market is a big component of inflation, a big component of the challenges that we're seeing in, in wealth divide. Um, so likely to be a continuing economic conversation over the next several years. Yeah, I love it. So, uh, we get the honor of actually interviewing Patrick for the first time today. Honor and a privilege. And don't worry, folks, we've got some really tough questions for him. Some hard-hitting gotcha type questions. I'm just kidding, Patrick. We <laughs> no softballs. To right, no no softballs. softballs. Yeah. I love it. Without further ado, should we, should we dive in here, fellas? Yeah, let's dive in. I'm ready. Yeah, let's do it. Great. Okay. My first question, Patrick, let's take it all the way back to the beginning. And I mean, before you even had your first investment, what was your 
inspiration? Like why real estate investing? What drew you into the industry? What experiences? Take us back there. So my dad, I'll simply say is my hero. And we, I grew up in a real estate family. He's got a super interesting story. He grew up uh, Irish Catholic, seven kids. He was the oldest son of seven. And, you know, they struggled. They were dirt poor. He had cousins that were always like, the father was a doctor. And I think there was always that kind of rich versus poor kind of divide. And honestly, you know, he wanted to change that. And he actually, he was not a student. He dropped out of college, dropped out of Ohio State. I think struggled for several years, like just trying to find his niche. And he actually ended up, he had a job as a, uh, it's kind of funny. He had a job as a jockstrap salesman, selling ace bandages and, and literally selling, selling jockstraps. So, you know, pharmaceutical rep kind of job. And he's fun. You know, he's funny. He's got this joke that he supported half the world with the job. You know, he was just like a funny guy. And he was making, I think about $7,000 a year at the time. And this was like, early 70s, I would say. Yeah, around 1970. And he met up with a guy in Toledo, Ohio, who was building homes. And he just met him at a party and like they started talking. And, you know, one thing led to another and they decided to partner and do a deal together. They, they did a spec home and it, they ended up, he ended up making more on that first house that they sold after the split. Is basically, he made as much as his salary selling jock straps. Right. You know, he got the fever. He, he knew he wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but he wasn't sure what. And, you know, he did really well on this first, this first house. They did a few more in Toledo. At the time, my mom was a nurse. So he started this home building business and they lived off of her salary as a, as a nurse. And they, they had saved a bunch of money too, relative to, you know, 1970 terms. They had a, a decent amount of savings. And he started this company and they, he had two kids, myself and my middle brother. So, you know, it took some balls, I would say, to like start this company with two young kids and a wife and try to make a go. And I think his first year in a, as an actual business, they made about $270 was not yeah. a great first year. So long story short, he ended up moving to Columbus, starting building just spec homes here and there, buying lots and, and building homes. And just trying to learn the business. You know, he, he had learned it to some degree with this guy that he had met at this party. And his brothers, he had three younger brothers. They all saw how he was doing. They saw that he was, you know, really doing well. And over time, all three of them joined the family business. So it was called Donnelly Brothers Homes. And they just got this machine going. There were four brothers who were, you know, really tough, hardworking guys. And I would say at their peak, they were doing 100 homes a year, probably. So I just grew up in in that kind of environment, you know, of, of just being pretty substantial. Yeah, they and they literally just got this machine going. They, my dad's brother, my uncle Dick is his name. He he passed away a few years ago, but he had kind of like he was the hard driver who always wanted to push and push and expand and do more and they did offices and condominiums and and all kinds of stuff. They did a community swimming pool. They were just like doing primarily single family homes and land development. And just honestly, just learning as they went along, you know, it was not like they had a playbook at all. There were no podcasts. There were no, there, we, they did not have like the benefits of what we have. There's so much information out there today that it's like ridiculous. They didn't have that advantage. You know, they literally were just kind of 
trying to learn as they went along and and just work hard and and it worked out they got lucky they in many ways but they picked the right spot in an area of columbus that was like having massive growth at the time and just really took off and so you know as a kid i just was very interested in business and entrepreneurial things i was interested in i had a fifth grade teacher talk about the stock market and i just kind of fell in love with the stock market in fifth grade started buying stocks through my dad you know like doing a custodial account and better or for worse i i doubled my first investment it was probably a bad thing to happen to a kid and it was like 300 bucks i turned it into 600 bucks on my first stock investment cuts the expectation a little high yeah it was a pretty high expectation right it definitely <laughs> gave me this fever and and i remember just as a kid like playing there was this video game called baron and it, the whole idea was like you started with seventy two thousand dollars of capital and the goal is to become a millionaire. And it was, I, I spent hours playing this game and you could invest in all different kinds of things from commodities to real estate, to equities, to bonds. Like each month you would get your, like what your portfolio balance was. And it was super cool. Just to, my brother and I would do this, try to see who could become a millionaire faster. And, uh, you know, growing up, I just, I, you know, whatever typical, like small little businesses had, you know, mowed grass in the neighborhood. I had a chocolate chip cookie business. I'd go to auctions. And so you got the taste, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just kind of, I don't know. I, I don't, I think there's a lot to be said for being surrounded by it. My dad and his brothers did a, a neighborhood that they all, we all lived in the same neighborhood. So every Friday night, I remember we'd get pizza all together and that's all they would talk about was business and what was going on. And, you know, I remember like my uncles talking about passive income at a very young age. So I had a really fortunate upbringing in, in many ways and a great model, I would say, like both my dad and my uncles were just like great models to be around. And I don't know that I realized it as at, at the time, but definitely looking back, like I realized how fortunate I was to just have them, have my dad as a father and, and my uncles around me. And, you know, every summer as I got older, I started at 14 working for the home building business, just picking up trash sweeping houses, like literally just hard, menial labor. I loved it. Like I loved getting gritty and dirty and the smell of sawdust. And at the end of the day, you could see what you had accomplished and it was super satisfying. And yeah, I, I loved it. So that that's a little bit of my inspiration was like just a, a family background in real estate and, and really just growing up around it and being around it from a very young age. Love it. For me, it's interesting because I came from a real estate background as well. Um, you know, my family's been in the business for most of my life. And, you know, maybe I did the coattails thing or the cop out thing where I kind of took the easy route, right? But it doesn't sound like you did that so much per se, where you probably had a pretty clear trajectory to get into a, an exceptionally large and substantial business in, in the real estate space and development and, and building of homes. Yet, you know, now you're a office investor and you sort of have a really cool trajectory of the asset classes from start to finish of how you got there. So I'd really love to hear sort of like, what were your first investments and how did you get from the trajectory of like your very first small residential investment or from even from sweeping the floors on construction sites to now investing in office buildings in, you know, major metro area? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I did have that kind of like, I could have gone into the family business and I decided at a young age not to, uh, you know, I, I remember I was 16 or 17 and I remember just seeing my dad and uncles in this huge argument. I, you know, I thought they were actually going like, <laughs> to like have a fight or something. And I, I just, I remember like making the conscious decision 
that I didn't want to like do that. You know, I didn't want anything to threaten my relationship with my dad or my brothers or uncles or anything like that. I was like, I can figure this out on my own. Maybe it was a little bit of arrogance at the time, but I just was like, I want to see what I can do on my own. And for better or worse, that's the path I took. I ended up studying finance at Miami of Ohio, right out of college, worked at a in an investment bank. I did a management training program at a bank and then got worked at their investment bank. And honestly, like I, I looked around, I got, it was basically my dream job at the time, what I thought was my dream job. And I was looking around like at the 45 year old guys that I was supposed to aspire to and not something I wanted. This was not the environment that I, I wanted to be in and ended up at the time I didn't know what else to do though. I kind of like had this one single trajectory path of like, you go to, you go to college, you work a couple years at a bank, you go get your MBA and then come and join the family business. Right. When I got into this investment banking program, I had like the things you were supposed to want, but yet it, it was not fulfilling to me at all. It kind of like made me reevaluate everything. Right. And so at the time I really pushed back against a lot of things, like how I, how I grew up and kind of really started in this whole exploration of like, I did a ton of reading and just like, really, I wanted to like figure out a true path for myself and my own life and not following like a predefined cookie cutter kind of life that I felt was like kind of laid out for me. So it started a, a, a path of just like doing, you know, I left this investment bank and I just ended up doing a ton of different stuff. I started a food truck. I actually like worked outside of the very investment bank that I used to work at selling, you know, selling food. <laughs> and so it was like pretty, you know, pretty dramatic turn of events, but I loved it. You know, like I loved the freedom of it. I loved the creativity of it. It gave me time. Like, and that's what I realized is like what I most wanted was to be wealthy in time. And so this food truck allowed yeah. me to do that. You know, I, I worked from like whatever, 10 to two every day. Then I had the day to myself to like do whatever, you know, go golfing or go rock climbing or go on a bike ride or read, whatever. And so I, I just ended up doing a lot of different things. I rode my bike across America from California back to Ohio for a fundraiser. I Amazing. built, I was really into Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau at the time. I built like a little Henry David Thoreau cabin. I ended up leading bike trips for a company in California, California like in wine country and leading really high-end bike trips in, you know, wine country in Napa Valley, Northern California, Martha's Vineyard. Ended up living a couple years in Vietnam. I just did, I tried to do a ton of adventures and um, I was fortunate. My dad was doing a condominium project right when I was in, in at this investment bank. And my first, to answer your question, Dan, was like the first investment was this condominium that I bought. I, you know, I was super fortunate. He sold it to me at cost. And it was like a little two bedroom, 1400 square foot condominium. And I rented it out to this lady and her husband. And this was in 1993. Long, I'm kind of dating myself, but this was 1993. And I still have the same lady living in this condo that I bought in, in 2023. So she's paid for the place. I, I hope she doesn't listen to this, but she's paid for the place several times over. And, and she's been great taken a way better care of it than I probably ever would have and treats it like her own place. And yeah, so that, that was the first investment. I imagine with rent control, she's probably not too unhappy with the rent controls. I imagine if she's been there since 93. Yeah, I, that's the thing. I mean, she's been a great tenant. I'm way, way below market rate and, and that's fine with me. Like I, I, 
you know, I'll bump her a little bit here and there, but in general, I'm just happy to have her. And, you know, it's been a great investment for me. And like I said, she's paid for it a couple times probably by now. And yeah, so and we can get into this later, but I, I generally would give deals to people who are great tenants. Like I'm happy taking a little cut in rent if, as long as they're going to like be great tenants, pay on time and take care of the place. That was my first in- investment in... Yeah, tenants are the best asset for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I take care of her and uh, we've got a great relationship and it's been good. Yeah, I mean, we, we say that all the time in the podcast, right? The real estate is a relationship-based business and, and essentially your, your clients are, are likely your tenants um, if, if you're a more traditional residential landlord. So Really great story so far, Patrick. What I'm what I'm hearing, which I think is is great for the audience to to hear and understand, is that you haven't been in real estate since your early twenties or or whatever. You've you've kind of you've taken a very untraditional path. It's, it has not been a linear journey for you, but you're still killing it right now. And I think that's something that a lot of people, whether you're in America or Canada that need to remember is, is, you know, there's, there's such a FOMO mentality. I need to get in now. You know, I'm going to miss all these good deals. They're all going to slip away. Well, no, there's deals to be found in any market. It's never too late to start. You know, you're going back to having your why, which is, which is time, which I think is probably one of the most common reasons that people get into real estate investing is to gain wealth, but to use that wealth to gain time. I want to keep things going and move on to the next question here. You've talked about finding your first deal, which was a great story, but I want to know how you found your second deal, your third deal, your 10th deal. How are you finding deals now? What strategies are you implementing to you know, get your next duplex, your next fix and flip, or your next apartment building? Walk us through that. Yeah. So the second deal happened. I was living in Vietnam. I had come back from Vietnam and, and frankly, like the reverse culture shock was really difficult. You know, I, I adjusted to moving to Vietnam. I was there a little over two years, but coming back was really tough. And I ended up doing my brother, my youngest brother, and I bought a lot and ended up doing a spec home. And again, fortunate. I was like, I'm going to take advantage of the opportunities that I have. And at the time, you know, my dad was doing a bunch of homes. I used one, we used one of his blueprints. We used his subs. It was fairly straightforward and, and we did really well on it. You know, we made, I think we each, we made about $32,000 on this flip and we split it. So it was a great little taste. It was a fun project for the two of us to do together. But then going from there, I, I was older at the time and I ended up finding a little neighborhood outside of Columbus, Ohio, which is like the last neighborhood to to have been fixed up. It, it was like a gentrifying area. It was really run down. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Hillbilly Elegy or know that book or movie, but it's this neighborhood is super Appalachian. So it is, it's really rough. Amazing. Uh, one of my favorite books, actually. Is that right? Yeah. It's a great book. I listened to it on Audible, but... Yeah. Yeah. Exceptional book, for sure. Yeah, I love it too. And so this little neighborhood was exactly hillbilly elegy, literally. And so very Appalachian type people had probably had five or six generations of basically people that had migrated from Kentucky up to Ohio. And the neighborhood was just totally in decline. My first homes I was buying for like 10, 12, $14,000. And these were rough, but like the bones and everything were super solid. 100 year old homes that were 
you know, great foundation, great, you know, when two by fours were really two by fours, like really great framing. And so I just identified this little neighborhood and decided to just focus 100% on that neighborhood and do what I could in it. And at the time, there weren't a lot of people buying down there. It was like kind of a, a, a market that was like viewed as whatever, you know, like it, it just was not viewed very favorably just because of the client, you know, the tenants that are down there and the type of people that are down there. And it was really rough and gritty, but I loved it. That's the place I want to be. It's literally like minutes from downtown. And so I, it's just a matter of time. I, I thought my thinking was like, it's just a matter of time before this neighborhood turns. People realize like these homes can be fixed up. And that was the strategy I decided upon. So I bought my first one. It was a short sale in 2014. And I bought it for 24000 Did a renovation of it. You know, it was completely trashed. There was like crackheads that had been living in it. So it was rough. Classic. Yeah, exactly. And But those are the kinds of things I like to buy, you know, like stuff that nobody else wants to touch. They walk in and they're like, ooh, you know, this is, this is horrible. I got a buddy who, who's like, it smells like money. You know, it's like, it smells like money when you look into a place like that. It smells like... No, no, that's urine, but... Uh, yeah, no, that's a cat. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's what I started buying was homes like that, renovating them, getting tenants in. And uh, it, it's worked out really well. Like I tried to hire the local people, like whatever the people that had lived in Franklin, it's called Franklinton that had lived down there for years and years. A lot of them have like a ton of skills, but a lot of them also have like drug and alcohol issues and things like that. And so that was difficult, but yeah, I just was doing renovations and then doing a mix of at once the renovation was finished, doing either a rental or, or selling it depending on, you know, my needs for capital. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? 
What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Yeah. So how did your strategy evolve over time? Like you, you know, it sounds like you were doing a little bit of kind of like your fix and flip, but then you'd re- stabilize them, rent them out. Were you kind of starting to do, try and take some equity out of these properties, refinance them and, and grow a portfolio? Um, and, and did your strategy change? Like, how did it change over time? How did it evolve over time? And sort of how did it progress into what you're doing now, which is like a shift over into a different asset class and an interesting asset class to be doing heading out of the global pandemic. So I'd really like to learn about kind of how you ended up to where you are today. So yeah, like I said, I was just buying stuff for 10, 12, $14,000, fixing them up, putting tenants in. In a lot of cases, I would do like a renovation that would be to the point where like what, what I would do if I were to like sell it to a first time home buyer. It was like, this is going to be a rental. So I would do a nice renovation, but definitely not crazy on, on the renovation costs with the thought that in three to five years of, after renting it, basically I've gotten most of my capital back from, from rent in, in most cases. And then at that point, I would do a second renovation, which was like a really nice one with the intent to sell them. And so that's what I did in a lot of cases. One project that was kind of interesting, I bought a, a four-unit apartment that had, been, had caught on fire. The fire department came in, like, you know, hosed the whole thing down. When you walked in, two of the units were lived in by hoarders. And I saw these and I was like, I'm buying this thing. So I bought it for $10,000. We went through seven massive dumpsters, like just to gut this thing and took it down to the studs. I love that your instinct is I'm buying this thing. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, you know, again, it was like most people would like just be like, hell no, I'm not touching that thing. You know, it needed a rebuild due, a portion needed rebuilt due to the fire. But yeah, it was probably the biggest project that I had done just in terms of the amount of work. And in each case, like I view each project almost like, what can I learn from this? Like, I really just want to learn as much as I can, you know, develop as a renovator, like learn what I can, like the processes and the systems and how to get more efficient at it. And so by taking on this like really bombed out, you know, four unit building. I was just like, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but my basis is only $10,000. It can't go too, too bad. <laughs> you know, so that, that's kind of like a, a TIP, the investors podcast. Like, you know, we're into value investing and Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. And so that was always a thing of mine is like a mar- having a margin of safety, buying re- below replacement cost in, in all cases. Like, what would this building cost to, to re, you know, like build? And, 
it sure as hell is more than $10,000. So I didn't do like a ton of uh, like, I've got a finance background, but it's like back of the napkin math, honestly, nothing, nothing crazy. But yeah, I did a hundred percent renovation on it. Yeah, we always, I was going to say, we, we always say if it doesn't make sense on, on a napkin, it's not going to make sense in Excel. Yeah, exactly right. And I don't think you need Excel, honestly. I mean, maybe in some cases, but for what I was doing, definitely not. And I heard you, Nick, say on one of the episodes I listened to yesterday that you need to have multiple exit strategies. Like when you go into a project and that's, that's how I viewed things as well. Like I was like, well, I'll renovate these things. I will try to rent them. But at the time when I was renting them, like the, the rent w- that I was asking was way higher than anything, you know, that had, that was in the area. So that didn't work. And I was like, well, I'll, tr-. the next option was like, I'm out. Tr- maybe I'll try to sell it like as a package that didn't work. So I ended up doing a condo conversion. So I, I turned all four apartments into individual condominiums and sold off, you know, four different condominiums. And it worked, that worked great. Like it, it was super profitable. It, um, you know, it was a really a good project and, and a fun project. You know, I felt, I feel really proud of like the taking a really crappy, crappy eyesore of a building and then turning it into a, something really nice that people want to live in and buy and, and that kind of thing. It's pretty rewarding. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that's, you know, one of the the core principles that we try to abide by as well is, is, you know, we're not just in real estate to get wealthy. It's actually doing something good. And, and you know, going back to what you said about value investing, one of my favorite real, real estate quotes ever is, I don't buy real estate because I think the value is going to go up. I buy real estate because I can make the value go up. And that's from uh, real estate Trent on Twitter, an amazing follow. I want to I want to dive into um, the the project you you just finished uh, telling us a story about. Maybe use that as a springboard to talk more about kind of fix and flips because you had mentioned you know you'd like to keep more in your portfolio, but starting out it you know you needed capital to get to the next deal, and maybe some of them you couldn't refinance because you didn't hit the mortgage requirements or whatever it may be. Let's talk about fix and flips because I think, you know, they've been so romanticized on HGTV and then, and all these shows that, that we all watch and everyone thinks a fix and flip is so easy. Well, you get in, you paint everything white and you get out and, you know, you make 50, 60 grand, whatever. Fix and flips, in my opinion, can actually be a very, a very risky investment strategy if not done correctly. So from your point of view, Patrick, a man that's done several of these successfully, what do you think some of the major pros and cons are and what's like, you know, the strategy around a good fix and flip? Walk us through it. Yeah. I mean, to your point, Nick, like it is definitely not a sexy business, you know, like, the, like shown on TV. Absolutely. It's not. It, and it is, it's, it's a job, honestly, like it is a grind and you know, you gotta have the mindset like this is going to be difficult. It's not an easy thing. I mean, maybe some renovations can be easy. Like if it's just, you're just putting lipstick on, uh, on something, but that's not the renovations I was doing in general. I was taking them down to the studs and doing a complete rebuild. And so, you know, it, it, that's a long, laborious, tedious process. And there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, the pros is like you said, you can force a lot of appreciation by doing this. I found, I was lucky. I found a great neighborhood that was rapidly appreciating in value. And I was able to get in at a time where I could buy stuff you know, the, the stuff I was buying for ten, twelve, fourteen thousand dollars is now they're hundred thousand dollars to buy right now. Like the that 
neighborhood has gone nuts. And it's a, it's one of the reasons why I've transitioned out of there. Like the numbers just started not to make sense to me. You know, it just was hard for me to get my head wrapped around the fact that there are homes that are selling for half a million dollars in a crack neighborhood. <laughs> you know, it's like really hard for me to, to get my head wrapped around, but, but it's happening and people are, are paying for it, you know? And so the cons is like, I would say it's just, it's, it's, the grind and and it can be risky. Like if you don't know your numbers and you don't have a margin of safety, you can get, and you're taking on leverage, which I, I didn't take on a lot of leverage ever. I did do a refinance, Dan, that you asked about and pulled some equity out of the rentals that I had to do more fix and flips. And, but the, the key factor is like not to get over leveraged. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are out there right now that have gotten over leveraged particularly if you've got an adjustable rate mortgage, like you're in tough shape potentially, you know, if you're, you've, you know, had an adjustable rate mortgage at 2% and now it's like, you know, triple or, or whatever, you know, more than triple, it's, that's a tough spot to be in. But yeah, it's a, it's a good business. I think, I think for a lot of early investors, it's a great way to learn real estate. Like you need to know the nuts and bolts of real estate, you know, from the ground up, ideally, like you can farm that out probably to somebody else, but Personally, I wanted to really know it and know how a house is built. And so yeah. I, th I think that's one of the advantages is once you know how to build a house, like you can add value to a lot of different things. It doesn't have to be residential. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm segueing to commercial right now. And it's the same, same kind of processes. It's, it's just on a commercial office building. Great explanation there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, in regards to actually like, so let's maybe pivot a little bit to the actual management of the asset. So, because you mentioned, you know, we kind of went through, okay, renovating, positioning of the asset, figuring out how to maximize the value, create as much value as we can. And now, you know, you're between having experience with multifamily assets, but also now making the segue into commercial assets. Where do you see the differences, but also, you know, what kind of strategies can you employ for for listeners but but also what do you do yourself to manage your rental properties successfully and what strategies you use to attract and retain tenants does that sort of start with a full scope kind of marketing strategy where you're really even building the property to attract the right the certain type of tenant can you just give us a kind of rundown on your strategy there yeah absolutely so i was in this neighborhood every single day you know grinding it out rebuilding these uh, these homes and people obviously like they're wa they're watching what's going on. The first one that I did was directly across the street from a church that actually had a, a program that they would take women that were coming out of prison, you know, and that's a tough spot to be in. You're coming out of prison and what are your opportunities? So this church would put them through a two year program where they would give, you know, get them housing, make them get a job, make them go to AA or whatever if they had drug or alcohol issues make them go to church, like really gave them a sense of community and a sense of belonging and gave them a second chance. Right. And so I became good friends with the pastor. And after the two year graduation, the pastor would often kind of vet tenants, potential tenants for me. So they would, they would have to go find their own housing after two years. And then, since I was in the neighborhood, she would often, like I said, vet women that had done really well, who would be good tenants or that she thought would be good tenants. And so in several cases, I would then rent to women that in one case, you know, I'd been in prison for 20 years for murder, frankly. Like, and most people wouldn't give somebody like that a chance. This lady was amazing. Similar to my very first tenant who's lived in this condominium I own, 
forever. Same kind of deal. Older lady, if you met her, you'd be, she's like your grandma, you know, just a really sweet, kind lady who took amazing care of the place. And what I found was like, I treated her really well with respect. And I think like she wasn't used to that. As a result, like it, it just paid off, you know, like she valued the opportunity to live in, in a very nice home and, you know, took great care of it. And I, I just try to like take good care of my tenants in general. I was below market rate a little bit, but I, w- I wasn't doing it to like maximize my cash flow. You know, I, I'm, I like cash flow, don't get me wrong, but like I also want to, if I can, I want to try to do some good in the world, you know, through fixing up these places and renting them to people that need, it, need a chance. Yeah, I think we talk a lot about that on our show, which is like, you know, real estate is very much a relationship business and, and, you know, managing the relationship with the tenant. Like a lot of people want to say, oh, real estate's passive income. I mean, I don't even know if anything is passive income, like maybe Bitcoin mining or something like crazy like that, right? Dividend investing, but still like you're going to, I don't know, nothing's passive, right? So I would say, you know, it's less passive and maybe more of a side hustle. And you have to factor in that, you know, you're, you're providing a service to a customer and the customer is a tenant in, in that case. And so you, you know, you've really figured out how to make it probably more passive by making sure that the relationship aspect of that business is good. That's probably like the core principle of good property management. I would totally agree with you there. Sorry, Nick, I know I cut you off there. So jump in. I think you had another question here. Yeah, I uh, look, I wanted to, I know we're kind of jumping all over the place here, but we've got a lot to talk about and I want to get as much out of uh, out of you as, as we can while we, while we have you here, Patrick. So you have got a, obviously a great story. You, you, you're crushing it in real estate right now, but I want to talk about your experience with the podcast so far, because you are lucky enough to be the co-host of the Real Estate 101 podcast. Dan and I are similarly lucky guys where we get to have a podcast and, and put it out twice a week, but ours is really data driven. So unfortunately, Dan and I usually just talk to each other, which I'm surprised we haven't gotten sick of each other yet. You, on the other hand, are lucky enough to have guests on. And now when, when you know, Dan and I had another podcast before this, kind of lived in relative obscurity, but we did have guests on weekly there. And I can say that every single one of those guests that we had on has earned to a friend, a contact, someone that I can pick up the phone and they will take my call whenever. Tell us about some of the great experiences you've had with, with guests, obviously present company excluded, and then maybe some of the things that you're seeing that come up time and time again, right? Some things that you've heard different investors in different asset classes and the similarities in what they're saying, whether it's investing principles or, or just some fundamentals of real estate, any, any major takeaways from there? Yeah. So first off, I mean, it's been an amazing experience for me to get the chance to talk to guys like you, to talk to like reach out on real estate Twitter and invite people on the show. And I love to learn. Like I literally just could learn all day long and listen to podcasts, read books. And so to get paid for it and interview people that are super smart, doing super interesting things, like it's, it's a huge blessing. I'm really thankful to TIP for, for the opportunity. And so it's been, it's been super cool and I, and I love it. I've never done a podcast prior to this. And it's, as you guys know, it's like a learning process for sure and getting comfortable with it, but it's been a lot of fun. In terms of like the guests that I've had on and, and some of the commonalities, I mean, just what comes to mind is the importance of finding your niche. I, I think initially, like it's important to have a, a general, obviously, understanding of, of real estate and how, how things work. But in, in a lot of cases, the guests that, that I've brought on have really found their niche and honed in on that and 
don't deviate and don't have a, uh, you know, I get prey because of the, the role that I'm in interviewing a lot of different people. I'm kind of prone to the shiny object syndrome of like, oh, self-storage is cool or, oh, you know, Airbnb is interesting or, you know, the different things that we all get exposed to. It's like, you, you can't do that. You've really got to focus and, and decide what your niche is going to be and drill down on that. Shiny object syndrome. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a very, very type A kind of ADHD personality that's exceptionally popular, I think, in the real estate space. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Very characteristic of Nick and I, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I just think of some of the guests that I've had on Sean Sweeney, who's really popular on, on real estate Twitter, got a pretty great following. He's got an awesome story. He was considering law school, decided not to go to law school, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like a lot of different people and, you know, it influenced and changed his life in many ways. He decided he wanted to get into real estate and took a job as a receptionist, right? And one of the themes I see with a lot of guests is like early on in their careers, they're willing to do whatever it takes simply to learn, to be around great people who are doing what they want to do. And humbling themselves and saying, I'll get coffee, I'll get, I'll make copies. I don't care what, you know, in his case, he, he told a funny story where he told a project manager that he knew how to knew Excel and he had no clue how to do Excel, but he's like, I'll figure it out. And he went home and tried to teach himself Excel. And I think you got to have that kind of willingness to humble yourself and, and take the jobs just that allow you the opportunity to learn. And from that, if you're doing good work, like it's going to get recognized and if you've got the grit and persistence, like a lot of these different people do, you know, they end up having careers that are amazing. Now he's like, you know, a developer in Minneapolis doing incredible projects that, you know, for me, I'm just like, I need to think, sometimes I'm like, I need to think bigger. It's, yeah. uh, it's just interesting to see what people do, you know, and he's got a very normal, regular story. And that's, the, that's what I've learned is all of these people are just regular, normal people who have just found their niche and run with it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think, you know, to use that also and touch on this shiny object syndrome that you mentioned, is there any like specific trends that you're seeing in the real estate space or, you know, that you've picked up from listening to people on the show that you want to pursue or how, and how do you kind of stay on, on top of like what's happening in the, in the space data wise or like what the new opportunities are? And then kind of on top of that, like, has it really prompted you to, to try and pursue different asset classes? I know you mentioned a couple of other ones, Airbnb, self-storage, et cetera. Where are you at on that? Yeah. So in, in terms of just kind of following trends, I, I would not say that I'm as data-driven as, as you guys are. I, I definitely value data and it's super important, but I kind of have my antenna up on real estate Twitter, I would say, is like my primary means of just, you know, if you curate the right people, you can get an incredible real estate education on real estate Twitter alone. And, I, and I, I think for any young person who is trying to learn, I would start there and follow the people that Moses Kagan is a guy, Sean Sweeney, like follow who they follow. Chris Powers is another guy. The Fort podcast is awesome. There's so many people doing amazing things and giving. They, they really have this like abundance mentality of sharing their playbook. And so the playbooks are out there. You just have to find what uh, attracts you. And like I said, just take some steps, take some baby steps and do it. And in terms of shiny object syndrome, I definitely am guilty of that. I, I try to stay focused. My wife and I, I haven't really gotten into this, but we, she bought an office building and she's a mental health therapist. She's got 23 offices and it's kind of like Salon Lofts is a company that rents out space to hairdressers. 
we're doing the same kind of idea, but we're renting out space, individual offices to mental health therapists. And so, you know, we thought that maybe when COVID hit, the pandemic hit, like it was really going to kill the business model. What we found was like people want to be face to face with a therapist. They don't want to be, they don't want to, I mean, this is cool what we're doing and, and be able to Zoom and, and do video calls, but for a therapist client relationship, they want to be face to face. And so she didn't really have much of a downturn at all in terms of there was a couple people that struggled to pay rent, but she, you know, work, we worked with them. And so she ended up having a, a waiting list basically of people that, and I, I want to take a step back. She, she's created community. And so as a therapist, it's really hard, you know, it's very individual and solitary and it can get lonely. Right. And so she's tried to do a really good job of creating a community. She does this thing every week or every, not every week, every couple of weeks called shrink tank. It's not shark tank, but like shrink tank where they all get together <laughs> and just like talk best practices or problems that they're having Amazing. with a client. And, and she's, so she's done a really fantastic job of just building community with therapists and they want to be a part of that. Right. And so she's got a waiting list and we we're like, we got married in September and, and she, you know, we were like, let's maybe let's do another one. We've got many people that are, would do another office. And so just kind of a, on a lark, I honestly didn't think this would pan out. We found an office literally uh, about 60 seconds from my house in, in Columbus. And it's just kind of a unique, I live in an area called German Village, which all the buildings are brick. And it's so it's like all the roads are brick. It's like really kind of a quaint little, almost European feel kind of a neighborhood. And this office building was two brick homes at one point, side by side. They connected the lot and at one point just created this entire commercial office building. And it was run by this somewhat dubious doctor, did like pain management. And so he was just churning through clients like 100 a day, handing out prescriptions, basically just a pill popper kind of guy. The DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, raided him last summer, shut him down and took his medical license away. And so, you know, this office has been sitting vacant for about a year. And so I found it on LoopNet. And a lot of people say you can't find anything good on LoopNet. I mean, I disagree with that. There are things on there. And we got lucky. I mean, we, we, this guy was in a bad spot and was forced, you know, he took his medical license away. He had to sell this, this office. And um, we put a lowball offer in and, you know, negotiated, but we ended up getting it at a really great price. And now we're in the middle of a renovation. And it's a fun project. Like it's super creative, really interesting people that want to move in. As therapists, we love to work with them and figure out what they want and just create something that, you know, a place where they want to work and see their clients. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day -day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. 
Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. I think the work that you, you and your wife are doing is fascinating. And, and again, it, it really shows that you can get so creative in, in real estate. I want to touch on something that's come up a few times, but we haven't done a deep dive on it, and that's exit strategies. Now, going back to the original question about fix and flips or any type of investment, to be honest, especially if you're pitching it to a JV partner or anything like that, you know, we always like to have those three good, better, best, you know, best case to worst case scenario exit strategies and have those modeled out. Now, that can be on an individual, asset by asset basis, but it can also mean what is your grandiose exit strategy as you know, are you selling the whole portfolio and moving to a beach anytime soon? I know that uh, you are in the middle of a reverse 1031 exchange right now. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, what you're trying to accomplish there? And then how has it been working with your wife? Because I know that real estate investing, Dan and I both have very patient girlfriends. So shout out Steph and Nicole, uh, that, 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 you know, not everyone can understand the difficulties and the challenges that constantly arise in real estate investing, even when things are going really well. So tell us about the 1031, maybe your, your general exit strategy, and then love to hear what it's been like working with your spouse. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, 
in terms of the strategy, so what I've been doing is taking most of my investments in Franklin, in this gentrifying neighborhood that I've been working on the last since 2014, and selling off, you know, piece by piece, house by house, that portfolio. And so in, right now, I'm selling. It's it's kind of unique. I, there's two houses that I'm I've I've sold. I'm in the middle of selling. And so a reverse 1031 is when you you buy a property first, and then the relinquished properties is what they're called. The relinquished properties are the houses that I own in this gentrifying neighborhood that I have 180 days to sell. So I'm in the middle of that. The One of the houses was in great shape when the tenant left. That was an, an issue. It was like, well, how do you deal with tenants? Like In terms of, re- I'm going to sell these things. So is it better to get the tenant, leave the tenants or get them out of there and do a, a renovation of them? And so I decided to get the tenants out and which was very difficult because again, like I developed friendship basically, and this is not a good thing in some cases, like it, I developed almost a friendship with them. And so to ask them to leave their home is like, was super difficult, really hard thing to do. It worked out very fortuitously in, in both cases. One lady, her father died and like she inherited a home. The other lady found a, a little rental that was one street over. So it was amazing, kind of like it worked out well for all of us. So I asked the tenants to leave. And so I'm in the middle of renovating. It's two properties, but one of the properties has three houses on it. So it's got a main house and then like two mother-in-law suites on two lots, basically. And so basically all three of those need to get renovated plus this fourth home. So I'm in the middle of that, which is, it's a lot, you know, where I've got a hundred, I've got till May 31st to get these sold and we'll see how it goes. You know, it, I don't know if you guys have ever, well, you don't have 1031s, I don't think, in Canada, no, do you? we don't. We're jealous. It's unfortunate. We don't have any of the fun stuff in Canada. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, you know? And so, yeah, but it, it puts a little pressure on and I think it'll be fine. But yeah, I, I, I'm spending time marketing these homes and selling them. And, it, you know, I enjoy the selling aspect. Like I know the houses really well. I really enjoy like meeting potential buyers and, and showing them like, I like that. I love the sales and marketing process, probably more so than the actual renovations, which can, like I said, can be a grind. But yeah. And so we have bought this building together. And to your point, Nick, it's challenging at times. I'm not going to lie. Like you've got to have a really solid relationship with your partner. If you're going to, with any partner, like, you know, it's difficult. And especially, you know, if you're married or a, a girlfriend, whatever, in my case, we've got a great relationship. We've been together for seven years now and, you know, just really trust each other implicitly. But we butted heads, you know, like along the way. It's like you got to kind of each have your own lane and stay in it. And so like she kind of lets me handle the renovations. And then she's really great with dealing with the, the therapists who are our clients and figuring out what they want and kind of like the final design touches of the, of the offices, not of the offices because they're responsible for that, but like, you know, the waiting rooms and the bathrooms and the, just the art on the wall and that stuff. Like I turn that completely over to her and I'm like, mm-hmm. have at it, you know? So we've, we've done well in, in finding our respective roles and, you know, we're definitely learning as we go along and we'd like to continue to do more of these. I, I think there, there's a definite niche and I think there's, there's a lot of, you know, office space has got crushed in many cases, you know, like I'm not sure what Canada has been like, but I got to imagine like same thing in the US, office space has just really gotten hurt. And there's going to be more and more opportunities to do what we're doing, like to pick up deals at a really good price. Because in a lot of cases, like, you know, people are working from home and they're not wanting to be in an office anymore. 
Yeah, I think you know in the in the U.S. space, you guys just hit for the first time fifty over fifty percent average office occupancy. So that's fifty percent of pre-COVID. I think Castle puts out a a really cool index on that. We only monitor one market, which is Toronto. Sort of, de- de- you know, I mean, in America, you guys would call it probably downtown Canada, but uh, I mean, you know, big city by by all means. I think it's bigger than Chicago now, but um, we're at about forty eight percent. Sorry, forty two percent. So lagging for sure. I think the big difference is, you know, in the U.S., much stronger capital market systems that where owners don't depend as much. You know, they're they're more capitalistic. Whereas in Canada, we have a big problem to solve because a lot of pensions own big real estate assets in in Canada, and so a lot of these bigger office towers, like you're seeing some defaults happening in in L.A. and San Francisco. You know, bro, even notable landlords like Brookfield, one of Brookfield's funds out there, has defaulted. There's a couple of other ones. I think it's going to take some time to unwind, but I would agree with you. And much the way I feel about the entire real estate scope right now is this is going to create once in a lifetime real estate investment opportunities for the millennial generation. And so that is what excites me about the whole thing. Should we maybe jump over to the rapid fire round here? Do you want to do that? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I think that uh, that would be great. Yeah. So what's what's the most impactful book that you've ever read? So I'm a huge reader. I'm I've like been reading since I was a kid, and uh, there's so many. I mean, it kind of depends again, like on the area that you're talking about. But like in terms of real estate, there's you know there, there's so many. I hate to say rich dad poor dad, but the cash flow book that he put out was a really important one for me. I think the concepts of rich dad poor dad are great. Uh, the second book was called Cash Flow, which is really good, which just gets into the concept of how you generate cash flow for yourself and create a life of you know more freedom and having time wealth, like we talked about earlier. You know, we we are Warren Buffett guys, and I I think the shareholder letters of Warren Buffett are an amazing. It's not strict, you know, certainly not real estate, but they the the shareholder letters of of Warren Buffett are an incredible read just to have like great business understanding, like from an amazing basically, you know, the Mozart of investing is how, you know, like what I would say, I would, I would encourage anyone to read those. There's a book, actually a guy I'm trying to get on the show. It's called Confessions of a Real Estate Entrepreneur, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but it's a really good book written by this real estate attorney, lawyer, who's done a ton of different things. And, you know, he goes through just stories of different deals that he's seen and participated in. It's, it's a great book to realize like just how vast and how creative real estate can be, you know, and, and I would recommend people to check that out. Yeah. So I, I, those would be a handful. And, you know, there's obviously other ones like in fiction and, you know, personal development kind of stuff that have also had an impact, but we're going to stick to real estate here. I don't recommend reading any books. Just listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, that's another, I recommend that as well. And I honestly, like I've really gotten into audible. Like I listen to most things now. I don't do a lot of reading lately, it seems. And so, yeah, listening to podcasts, listening to audible, it's uh, pretty amazing. Like just to turn your car into a a learning university as you drive around. Like I just don't even listen to music anymore, honestly. Yeah. Same. Love that. Okay. Next, next quick one here. What is your best investment? Best investment. So I'm hesitant to say this, but like I mentioned this condominium conversion that I did. And I took the proceeds from the sale of those four units and bought a bunch of Bitcoin when it was like in the $7,000, $8,000 range. And that's actually kind of how I ended up at TIP. I was a big fan of Preston Pish, who has a show called Bitcoin Fundamentals. 
and you know got into learning about primarily Bitcoin in 2017 and went down the rabbit hole. I'm really into like sound money and understanding the monetary system. It's like a sea that we're swimming in and nobody questions like, what is money? I think it's an important question to ask, like, what is money? What gives it, it value? And he was very formative in my learning. So a shout out to Preston and Bitcoin Fundamentals. But yeah, that was my best investment. I, I bought, I kind of went all in at a, at a low price relatively and wrote it up to whatever its high was, 68, 69,000. I've ridden it all the way back down, which is super painful. The last year has been very painful. But you know, I continue to just kind of dollar cost average and just build my, my uh, Bitcoin stack. So that's, that's probably been the best one, frankly. I guess the last one is what, uh, what controversial opinion do you have that goes against conventional wisdom? Controversial opinion that goes against conventionalism. I would say my Bitcoin premise. Like I, I don't think in real estate Twitter, most people on, Bit, on real estate Twitter have a pretty dim view of, of Bitcoin. I think for most people that have done like a serious deep dive into really understanding it, like 10, 20 hours, there's, if you put that time into with an open mind to understand it, I don't think you're going to have like the cynical views that I see in real estate Twitter about it. I think there's a lot of people like that have seen and it does piss you off. Like when you see people making a ton of money on buying Bitcoin at a low price and like you missed out on that, that is a, you know, whatever. We all have uh, greed and envy and jealousy. And so that's one that I, I just would, would, uh, would say is somewhat controversial is, is my, my uh, strong belief and high conviction in Bitcoin. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Real estate Twitter is a wealth of knowledge, but they, they can be mean on there sometimes as well. Oh, Maybe yeah. that's just Twitter in general. That's Twitter in general, um, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're getting to the end here, Patrick, but, uh, you know, obviously want to thank you so much for having us on your show to interview you. It's definitely been very insightful and, and I've learned a lot about you and, and, uh, and, and more about real estate in general, but I did want to see if you had any kind of last words, final thoughts, words of encouragement for our listeners, primarily those that are early on in their investing career. So any, any words of advice before we get out of here? Yeah. So first off, Nick and Dan, I really appreciate you having me on, asking the questions or having, you know, doing this together, organizing this. This has been a lot of fun and I appreciate your time as well. So, but in terms of like, whatever, something I would say to guys early in their career, and I actually love talking to guys that are early and interested and hungry about real estate. I would say just like, you've got to become a perpetual learner. You've got to be like continually learning. And you, you know, there's absolutely no excuse not to like, really become an expert in whatever you choose to. And you've just got to put the time in. You've got to listen to the podcasts. You got to find the right people. You got to do the reading. You got to do the work. And then you, you can't stay in learning mode. I think too many people stay in learning mode. And I think I probably have been guilty of this off and on throughout my career where I just, if I just get more knowledge and more information, then I'll be ready. It doesn't work that way. Like You just have to get in. You're never going to be 100% ready. You, you're going to learn more by doing your first deal than you will doing reading thousands of hours of books. Like you just have to get started, and that's what I would encourage anyone to do. Like real estate is a an amazing opportunity, and like there's always going to be opportunities. And like we said, you just find your niche and run with it. You're, you're going to do do well if you've got the right. Obviously, you've got to work hard. You've got to be intelligent about it. But there's a lot of a lot of potential for a lot of young people to make a nice life for themselves through real estate. Love it. Totally. Very well said. 
We're on your show, but the listeners, if they wanted to get in touch with you, where can they find you? What are your socials? How do people get in hold of you or work with you? Yeah. So um, on real estate Twitter, as we talked about a lot, so that's probably the best way. Like if you DM me, I'll definitely respond. Um, also through the Investors Podcast, you can reach out to me there. I've got my email, Patrick Donnelly at theinvestorspodcast.com. I'll respond to anybody, anybody who wants to reach out. I'm happy to talk, share what I can. So those are the two best ways is Twitter and by email. So thank you guys. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to this coming out. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.